Hello and welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain and oilseed and fibre markets. I'm Olivia Agar. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 208, where today Robert Herman is joining me to cover the key trends and factors we've seen impacting our core commodity markets over the recent quarter. I do need to pop a disclaimer on top of this episode today that it was recorded earlier in the week. And just to update the ever-changing news in the Black Sea, Russia's withdrawal of the grain corridor that we mentioned in this episode has been reversed. They're now back and cooperating to a degree. If you haven't got a hold of our quarterly market insights report that we're discussing, there's a link in the show notes and we'll get straight into the episode now. I hope you enjoy it. So Rob, we released our quarterly market insights report a couple of weeks ago now, which looks at the key trends across commodity markets over the July to September quarter, as well as the outlook, which we're going to recap today. But it's pretty timely, I think, that we have a catch up because, as they say, a week can be a very long time in markets and there's been some pretty big developments since that report. There has been some big developments, Liv, and it is a big report that's very well done. So congratulations to all the uh, contributors to that report. But if we're going to start off with grains or even grains and oil seeds or um, anything to do with crops, we can't uh, ignore the impact of the Black Sea geopolitical situation on prices live just give us a bit of an update on what the report's telling us about that yeah well if you go back a few months now the market had really settled into the pre-war level of prices that we'd seen and and, you know the main factor behind that was that we had a solution to the supply bottleneck in the establishment of the black sea grain corridor which was actually seeing grain exported out of the black sea even if it was only slowly And now I say had there because just over the weekend, Russia completely walked away from the deal. And there's now a lot of uncertainty again being created in the market. And we're seeing that risk premium being built back, especially into the wheat market. And so basically overnight from when that news was announced, the CBOT wheat futures contract jumped 6% on that news. So Robert just shows how volatile the situation, how these food security concerns are tied up to supply in the Black Sea and, and how it causes a response in the market. So that's that's interesting, Liv. Um, and of course, part of that equation is that uh, Europe is looking for a lot of uh, commodity um, and it's especially impacting on canola. I noted in the report, which was a really interesting um, stat, is that 70% of the canola that goes into Europe is converted into biodiesel. So that must play pretty closely along the same lines as where oil prices are going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they're all the poor economic news and that fear of recession um, and what that would do for demand for oil was putting a lot of downward pressure on the price of crude oil. But then, you know, like these changing things that keep happening early in October, the OPEC group of oil producers, which does include Russia, announced that they were going to cut oil production quotas by 2 million barrels a day due to all these recession concerns. And that uh, caused a complete turnaround in the trajectory of crude oil prices. And we saw a big rally. And as we were just talking about, so crude oil prices have a really good correlation with canola. So that's been one of the major drivers in a turnaround in the canola outlook just in recent weeks alone, along with all these price rises in Europe and support from palm oil and soy markets as well. 
Well, that's very timely because um, I heard today, Liv, that the first um, the first reports of, of southern Australia where they're starting to windrow canola in South Australia. So it's getting close to cropping, uh, to harvest time here. But um, I, I suppose a lot of the focus of our local producers here is on the um, the rain and the impact that's having on the crop. And, and to some degree, it's going to impact on yields. But it was interesting in your quarterly report, uh, even though we're going to have a, an up and down year, and we know different states in, in different stages, west versus east, but global supply is likely to rise. Which countries are leading those increases, Liv? So Russia and Canada are the major sources of production increases for this season. So if we look at Russia, they're forecast to produce over 100 million metric tonnes of wheat this year. And if you go back to their previous record, that was in 2018 and it was 84 million metric tonnes. So a huge amount of wheat being produced in that country. And of course, now with the suspension of the export corridor, there just isn't a clear pathway for that wheat to get out, which I'm, I'm sure we'll watch unfold in the weeks ahead. And I'm sure it will be exported, but just one of those factors that's playing on the market. And then I mentioned the Kanda. Um, they've also had a really good spring wheat crop. Um, and that's offsetting what has been some pretty big supply-related concerns in other major exporting countries. So the, the US winter wheat conditions are at an all-time low. Ukraine's wheat crop is down about 43% from last year. And then Argentina is the other bullish news for wheat, where their wheat crop forecast has been cut to 13 million metric tonnes, when just for, for reference, last year's was 23. So as usual, there's a lot of supply news that the market's trying to get the head around. But for Australian growers, harvesting, or as you said, close to harvesting, it's a very good time for a price rally. Yes, it is. And um, and I know that, um, you know, we're really thinking of the people who have got um, problems with flooding. But uh, there are some reports coming out of some of the lighter countries, so some of the Mali countries, where you know, they're talking about crop yields that are going to be um, almost record yields for them. So, you know, it's it's, it's always um, another side to the coin, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not just the grains market that's been going through a lot of volatility of late, Rob. The cattle market's also had its fair share in the last quarter. So can you talk through some of the negative factors that were initially weighing on cattle prices earlier in the quarter? Well, you made a good point about the volatility, Liv, and I noticed that in the quarterly report, we we published the average price for the quarter, and the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator was averaging 990 cents, but it fluctuated 100 cents above and 100 cents below that level, so it was a wild ride. Um, there, there was concerns through the winter with um, increasing supply, and, and you know, demand was sort of mucking along. I note that uh, in the report, it, uh, demand was... Um, tagged as fumbling, and it's probably a good a good call for it. We also had um, US 90 CL prices fall and, and, and a bit of a weakening um, US demand. And the um, the domestic slaughter was pretty high. You know, it was a, it was a strong slaughter number through the winter. And uh, we know that our slaughter, our processing capacities uh, compromised this year because of, um, you know, the trouble of getting, getting uh, staff back in after our COVID lockdowns, et cetera. So, um, so that all weighed on it. The other one that was a um, a big concern, I think, was the um, the biosecurity concerns. I suppose when when foot and mouth disease was reported in Indonesia and Bali, um, there was a lot of 
hyper talk about that. You know, I don't think it did anyone much good, but it really, we saw an impact on the market and uh, and that was a negative. Yeah, and it's good to see that that was so short-lived, that period of, of the FMD concern, even though the threat is still there, all the factors that have been put in place to limit the risk of it coming to Australia has really seen the price of cattle rebound. But the other thing that's been a mover in the market of late has been the wet conditions. So what, what have you seen that have on the cattle market? Well, the wet conditions, uh, on the one hand, make it more difficult for processors to source the stock they want. So you know, not as many cattle get to the market. Um, the cattle aren't quite as good in the wet conditions because, um, you know, they just need a bit of sun and a bit of uh, spring weather on them to, to bloom them up. But also you've got farmers uh, or cattle producers who are looking at the uh, situation and saying, well, I'm, you know, I might just hold on to my cattle a bit longer. And we know that, um, you know, that we've seen increased numbers in feedlots and uh, and increased demand through feedlots. And it's all about trying to secure that supply. So the other factor that the wet season has is it actually sets up the pastures and the growth for the future. And uh, I was driving in southeast South Australia last week and then across uh, Western Victoria this week. And even though people say how wet it is, um, the other comment is, well, we've got a lot of feed and really the spring hasn't even got here yet, so it's all ahead of us. So there, that, that's what the weather's doing in terms of uh, influence of cattle market, Liv. Well, hopefully that holds prices in at strong levels for the near term until it either it dries out or, or we get a turnaround in the cold there. What about beef, Robert? You mentioned there earlier about the US market. What's been playing out there? Yes, well, we, we know that the demand has been softening a little bit. And of course, in the US, they're still going through a herd liquidation phase where they're they're pushing a lot of stock through the processes. And so, you know, there's a in the short term, there's going to be plenty of US beef coming through. And we'll, we've talked about it before how that will change when they start to rebuild the herd. But the um, so the demand for and based on if you look at the 90 CL price was a little bit weaker, but it, the offsetting factor was that our Aussie dollar was weaker. So, you know, it's not all bad news when things are weaker. For, for selling Australian commodities, a lower dollar makes us more attractive. And uh, and that was an offsetting factor against perhaps a little bit weaker demand for the for the meat product. And we've seen that across other commodities as well. There's always two sides to the dollar story, isn't there, Rob? The more competitiveness in our export markets, but the cost of imports and inputs into our products is also increasing there. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, in the end, you don't want a low dollar. Um, really, you don't want a low dollar. I mean, we, we take it when we're selling commodities, but it's sort of a low dollar, low Australian dollar is actually a reflection of confidence. And and that's what's lacking, which means our, um, our dollar's lower and, and people rush to get US dollars. But um, underlying demand um, has softened a little bit through this period. There's no doubt about that. And that's to be expected with all the uncertainty. Um, but when you look out over the horizon, there's probably a fair bit of blue sky there, Liv. So I just wanted to, while we're talking about red meat, what about um, the lamb and sheep? And I know you've had a close look at that. That also, we can say the price volatility has been a fair bit higher than usual. Yeah, it definitely has. I mean, we usually see a pretty consistent trend in lamb and sheep markets. Winter's the low in supply and the peak of price for lamb and sheep, but these unusual supply factors have been throwing the normal price patterns out this season. And one of those factors was the supply of old season lambs, and we've spoken about that a fair bit on the podcast here, in that 
Uh, we had really good season last year. We've had limited capacity in our processes due to labour shortfalls and also just uh, struggles in getting product uh, shipped out of the country. Combined with that good season has meant that the old season lamb, so the ones born last year, has been coming through to the market at a lot later point of time this season. And that's really been one of the unusual factors that has played on the market this year. We also had the foot and mouth disease outbreak, which as for cattle caused a big drop in, in price because of all the panic surrounding that. So there was around 25% drop in lamb and sheep prices within just a few weeks. But as with the cattle market as well, over time, we've seen those fears um, drain out and prices have really recovered back to where they were before that, that panic set in. So it, it's not looking too bad, really, when you think about it. I mean, we've got disrupted supply and we've got constrained processes and we've got a few uh, left field things floating around, but prices are holding on pretty well. I notice in the report we call, we quoted mutton as being of a consistent level. Just elaborate a little bit on where the mutton price is. Yeah, so Robert was consistent in terms of geographic spread. Mutton definitely wasn't immune to the price falls that we saw in the lamb market as well. But we're now at a point in the flock rebuild where retained ewes are producing return. So that's taken away some of the competition from the market and prices have been fairly consistent across states and around the five-year average levels. The only exclusion for that is WA, which is operating as, at a really significant discount um, across the lamb and sheep markets because of all the labour issues that are really affecting their meat processor capacity. Yes, and it's a, it's always a frustration for WA producers. And I was with a couple on Friday last week, and um, and you know they were again concerned that um, you know a, it's a state with a big um, sheep flock, um, but not a big processing capacity, so it tends to get overrun a little bit. Um, the other thing, just talking about lamb supply um this wet weather we're hearing out of new south wales that the lamb supply has been delayed i know early in the year in the in the winter really we were talking about it being a month behind but it might be further behind now so it's probably going to mean we're going to have old seasons lambs again dragging on into next year Liv. Yeah, I think you're right there, Rob. It's likely that we'll see lambs that would have normally been sold this year extended out into uh, 2023 as well. So a bit of history repeating, I think, is in store for this year. I'm sure the processors won't be too upset about that, though, because they tend to get overwhelmed in the spring with a heap of lambs coming on, especially if New South Wales has a bit of a dry period in October, November. Um, so if that spreads out, that won't be too bad. There was a really good uh, point made in the report, I think, Liv, and it talked about uh, domestic consumption of lamb in Australia versus exports and how that's changed. Can you just talk a little bit about the change that's happened over that period? Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's been a really steady decline in per capita meat consumption over the last two decades in Australia. Um, and in for sheep meat in particular, that's really coincided with a shift away from domestic orientated markets towards export orientated. So if you look back to 2000, 62% of Australian lamb was consumed domestically with the remainder exported, obviously. But in the first half of this year, 60% of Australian lamb production was exported and almost all of Australian mutton is being exported. So that's been a, a huge shift for a market in just um, two decades, you know, to see that big increase over there. And, and you have seen the importance of this play out, even just in the last few months where 
that large volume of overflow of old seeds and lambs that were processed were able to be shifted into our export markets and still at a good price. So having this diverse customer base um, in this export market, it's really crucial to our markets and industry. Yes, you're right. And it's, it is quite extraordinary. That, I mean, 20 years is not a long time in terms of market development, but to see that happen, you also think, well, I hate to think what it'd be like if we hadn't developed those export markets. So full, full marks to the processors and MLA and others who have worked hard at developing those markets. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Rob, we'd better touch off on wool to end. And there's been a lot of poor economic news around the world, um, particularly out of China. So how has this been affecting wool and other fibres? Well, not good. As we know, wool's a market that likes good, stable um, conditions and, and improving economic conditions. And, uh, and it hasn't had them. So it's been a bit affected, especially in China, where we have, um, we know that China is taking a particular um, action and particular stance on, on trying to keep COVID uh, out of the country. And it means that, that the uncertainty of what's happening in those manufacturers is really really a problem. The other one, and Andrew Woods did some really good work on this, is looking at the German IFO index. And it doesn't always tell us which way wool markets are going, but the IFO index tells you what the market, what the manufacturing sentiment is in Germany. And Germany is the biggest economy in Europe, so it's important and they're a big exporter of products. And that index is still negative. So even though we've we've got um, the market sort of tracking along with China um, you know, causing a few concerns. We've also got this overlay of um, of concern that the economic uh, outlook isn't strong and history will tell us that that's not good for wool. Now, to balance that off, though, and Andrew also made this point, um, you know, we generally see a weakening of prices into the spring and then a rally out of the spring into, into the early part of the new, new year. So I guess the point to be made there is let's see which um, factor uh, overrides or whether these factors just cancel themselves out. Yeah, and what what fibers are most at risk from poor economic outlooks? Do you think, Rob? Well, I think the most risk would be uh, is is generally your, your um, apparel fibers, which is your merinos, and and I suppose if you want to break that down. The fine merino is at a a really serious premium to the rest of the the merinos, so that's that's got some risk involved. Um, and look, who knows? I think we've got um, we've built up demand for fine wool. Whether that's enough to withstand, um, you know, a general economic downturn, time will tell. I think what's not much at risk is crossbred wool. Live, I mean, it is really bouncing along the bottom. It's um, again, Andrew Woods also made the point that it's sort of at these levels in US dollar terms where. If we look back over the last 40 years, it starts to find some support um, from people who can see that it's cheap and they can find a home for it. That's a positive and hopefully, you know, the, the poor economic outlook doesn't get in the way of that factor as well. What about the seasonal conditions as well, Rob? So we've had very good ones and, you know, that's yep. really set us up well for the, for the regions and the seasons ahead. But what are the supply implications of that looking forward? Well, the supply to date is, is very similar. The amount of wool that's being sold is very similar to what we sold over the last two years on a weekly basis, around about 35,000 bales a week. Um, but what's going, what is changing, and the wet weather's changing that, is that we'll see um, uh, shearing delayed to some degree, so that's going to hold things back. We'll also see wool come through that is a bit longer than what it normally would be because it's a bit delayed, and, and 
generally the sheep have had a pretty good growing season, so they're going to be well grown. And the other one to watch carefully, and it'll come through after Christmas probably, will be the expectation that we'll see increased vegetable matter in our in our wool based on the the rain we're getting now, which then turns into pasture and, and grasses and seeds. So that and the reason that's a bit of a concern for the wool industry is that the industry could absorb a certain amount of wool that has high VM, but you, you start to overload it and all of a sudden the discounts for that type of wool start to get pretty extreme. So we're going to, I think it's going to be from an analyst point of view, Liv, this is going to be a really interesting exercise to see what happens when we've got this really wet period of time. I mean, really the, the last two or three weeks has hardly been a sheep shorn on the East Coast. You know, it's just been incredible. So that's got to play into supply this side of Christmas. We we'll just won't get there. There's really been no break in the wet weather and we'll, as you said, see see how that plays out on supply in the, the weeks and, and months ahead. But, you know, just looking at the factors that are being in play across commodity markets at the moment, which we'll keep assessing, there's certainly not going to be any short of talking points for the, the next quarterly report, I think. That's for sure, Liv, and, um, and I, I, I really enjoyed seeing it all brought together this time, and, you know, I've had a little bit to do with it over the time, but uh, it, it, it makes you think about these markets and how they are quite dynamic, and, uh, and you know, Australia just really relies on, that, uh, on those markets, straight agriculture, and so there's a bit of uncertainty, uh, there's a lot of optimism, um, and I suppose it's like markets usually are, Liv, it's... Uh, every day is going to be a new day. <laughs> That's a good way to recap it, Rob. Thanks so much for joining me to talk through it all today. Pleasure, Liv.